Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyer Labs, and today we get to talk to Carl Yagnema. A lot of you probably haven't heard of Carl, but his company is making waves around self-driving cars. Carl is the CEO and co-founder of Newtonomy, which is a self-driving car company, and Carl has deep experience around robotics, uh, mobility, and he probably has one of the deepest backgrounds in the world in that area. He's also the director of the Robotic Mobility Group at MIT, so Carl stays pretty busy. And he received his PhD from MIT in 2001. So Newtonomy has been all over the media about their self-driving cars in Singapore and now Boston. Uh, they might not get quite as much attention as Google or Tesla, but they're definitely pushing the self-driving boundaries just like them. So I'm pretty pumped to have Carl on the show. So Carl, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. So let's, uh, yeah, before we talked about what you're doing now can you just give us a brief overview on your background and how you got to where you are now well my academic background you know i came to mit in 1995 as a graduate student i uh, did a phd in robotics my uh, phd thesis work was in the area of uh, mobile robotics and specifically planetary exploration rovers and I, when i finished my phd you know i started directing a research lab at mit and we did a number of projects over the years for automotive companies in the areas of what was then called active safety hmm. um, or driver assistance technology. And we also did a number of research programs for the Department of Defense, the National Science Foundation, other government agencies in the area of mobile robotics. And as it turns out, you know, all the technology we were investigating uh, during that period, things like robotic motion planning, uh, localization, mapping, perception, you know, those became the building blocks of self-driving cars. So uh, about three or four years ago, myself and my co-founder, who was a uh, one of my colleagues at MIT, a fellow named Emilio Fazzoli, uh, we, we woke up one day and realized that the work that we'd been doing at MIT was really at the dead center of this emerging industry around self-driving cars. And that's what really motivated us to launch the company. Gotcha. So what was one of the first projects you worked on with a, a car company? Well, we did um, quite a bit of work with Ford, um, let's say relatively early in my career, when we were looking at this problem of driver assistance and how you might develop what we can call a semi-autonomous system, which is to say one that would let the driver drive sometimes and other times the uh you know, the, the, the computer system would drive the car. And the question of when the system would take control from the driver and when it would hand it back to the driver, that was one of the fundamental issues we were trying to figure out. Um, <clears throat> kind of an interesting side anecdote here. <laughs> the student of mine who worked on that project for his PhD was a fellow named Sterling Anderson. Um, Sterling later went off to be a consultant at McKinsey, but after McKinsey, he went to Tesla. And at Tesla, one of the things he ended up doing was uh, leading their self-driving car <laughs> program, which, uh, you know, if my description of our work sounded familiar, it's because Tesla's work is a semi-autonomous control approach. And so um, I guess that's part of my academic family tree that ended up over on the West Coast. 
that, that's a, it's a, I'm sure it's a small a small world uh, up there on the top. And so when you you know when you're working on these projects, did you ever envision kind of where things were at now in self driving cars? I mean, it sounds like it kind of just hit you on the head almost at a certain time. Like wow, you know what we're doing here has a lot of uh, overlap with what what Google's doing and the other, these other companies are doing. Yeah, I really did. I mean, when you're in it from the beginning, um, sometimes it really does take a moment where you're able to step back and put things in perspective. You know, we had known for a long time that the technology had massive uh, promise to um, revolutionize how people got around, mainly because it would lead to more efficient, safer, and lower-cost transportation worldwide. But, But for quite a while, the technology maturity just wasn't quite there yet. I mean, we would struggle for days, weeks, and months just to be able to demonstrate, you know, some relatively simple task in a lab environment. And the technology over time got a little better, a little better. But then, you know, again, it was really one of those days where you realize, hey, this stuff actually is almost working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then that's the time when you start to think beyond the academic laboratory, you know, the four walls of your laboratory and think about how you could start to deploy that technology in the wider world. Gotcha. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, Newtonomy a little bit. Can you tell us, just give us a little overview on, well, we know what you guys are doing, but a little bit of where you're at with, uh, Singapore and Boston and how many employees you have and, um, kind of the, your timelines for, whether it's a level five driving or whatever time uh, other timelines you want to share. Sure. So we are based in uh, Boston and Singapore. We are roughly one third of the company today in uh, Boston and roughly two thirds in Singapore. Uh, We're very much focused on technical development. Our business team is pretty lean. It's only about four or five of us at the company that really aren't focused on core technical development. Um, what's somewhat unique about what we're doing compared to some of the startups in the space is that we are developing a complete full-stack solution to autonomous driving. That includes all the software that would go on the vehicle to allow a vehicle to you know, navigate safely down a road network autonomously. It includes software that goes on a handset to allow an end user to monitor the progress of a car that, you know, is coming to pick them up for an autonomous trip. And it includes software that would sit in the cloud that would coordinate, you know, in an optimal fashion, the activities of a very large fleet of autonomous vehicles. So we tend to, you know, when we think about autonomous vehicles, just think about the software that sits in the car, but there's other dimensions to that problem where you can add a lot of value. And, you know, what we find, at least today in the, in the community, is that while there's a lot of people focused on sub-problems, you know, perception, mapping, we believe that there's a big advantage to be able to address the entire problem because what's allows, what that allows you to do is optimize the performance of the system by having a very deep integration uh, of the various subsystems and the knowledge of you know, how they're all working internally. Hmm, interesting. I can see where that is a big advantage. And what type of uh, uh, sensors and cameras do you have on your car? And is that, I mean, do a lot of the companies have kind of similar sensors and cameras, or does everyone have a little different package that you know of at least? I would, 
Yeah, I would say that as a community, you know, we have generally converged to a uh, place where we're using the same types of sensors, namely cameras, radars, and lidars, in some combination. And the reason we're doing that is because of the redundancy you get from those, you know, complementary sensor modes. I think everybody has a slightly different configuration of those sensors, and uh, uh, and understandably so. They're all coming at the problem, you know, independently, trying to um, optimize as best they can. There's a few exceptions to that. You know, there's a few groups attempting to solve the problem relying, <clears throat> let's say, not on LIDAR or entirely on vision and radar. It makes the problem a bit diffi- uh, more difficult, but the potential payoff, if you can, if you can win that way, is that uh, you know you avoid using quite an expensive sensor. So on our fleet of R&D vehicles, though, I can tell you that um, you know we experiment, we explore a number of different sensor configurations. Both today, we, we do tweak things from time to time, but um, all of our cars have some combination of radars, cameras, and lidar sensors. Okay, and. You know, you said one of your main advantages is kind of more of a, a systems approach. And, uh, you know, I was curious. We Well, you're, you're in Boston, so you get snow. And we're in Madison, Wisconsin, so we get we get snow. Now, I was curious yeah. of the difficulties between and what type of training you've done in snow versus sun. There's probably not a lot of snow in Singapore. But, uh, um, mm-hmm. I you know, so how much harder is it to train a car in snow? And uh, and how how is your system kind of analysis thinking help compared to not having that uh, overall approach? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, this is a really hard technical problem, and it's hard enough to get it working in good conditions. Uh, that's why, really, we do most of our testing in good weather conditions, and most of our competitors do most of their testing in good weather conditions, because they're still trying to solve that, you know, the quote-unquote easy case first. But with that said, you know, we think about, the future where we want to be deploying these cars in cities worldwide in all kinds of conditions. We do a lot of driving in the rain in Singapore. Oh. Uh, it rains frequently in Singapore, anywhere from, you know, a drizzle to a really heavy monsoon-like downpour. And we're able to drive in quite a wide range of rainy conditions. <clears throat> We've driven in snow, um, fairly heavy snow, although not deep snow, so kind of dense flurries. We've done that successfully. I wouldn't say we've um, done it extensively. We haven't really validated our software across a range of conditions. We're trying to, you know, really build a great competency in the good conditions and then push at the boundaries of the uh, off-nominal weather conditions. So, you know, we're, we were very pleased to see that when we did our testing in snow, we saw good performance of the algorithms um, and similarly in rain. But, um, you know, there's work to be done to really understand the limits of your system. You know, how much snow is too much? How much rain uh, millimeters per hour is too much? Uh, when you get down into detail, you know, it's, it's not really the snow, the falling snow that bothers the system. It's the fact that when you accumulate a lot of snow, uh, the world around you looks different than it did, mm. you know, when there was no snow on the ground. Um, so that can cause some, you know, complications for some of the subsystems. But um, so far, our initial testing has been very promising. Interesting. And I imagine um, the vision systems probably wouldn't work as well as LIDAR. But uh, is, is that the case, you think, in snow, or is it um, the vision systems have been working okay? Well, this is, you know, this really gets to that uh, 
complementarity point. I mean, this is the reason we use multiple sensor modes is because uh, for exactly scenarios like this, where you've got decreased visibility in snowy conditions, uh, vision sensors, there's no magic bullet there. You know, if you're looking out your windshield and you can't see a whole lot, <laughs> your cameras aren't going to see a whole lot either. But the good news is your radar sensors, your LIDAR sensors may be relatively unaffected. Hmm. And so, uh, again, it's exa- that's exactly the reason why we, you know, have this kind of belt and suspenders approach of having multiple complementary sensor modes that in- often are overlapping. They're providing you very similar information. But in some conditions, like snowy days, uh, one of them may not function well at all. You have to rely more heavily on the others. Makes sense. Okay. So you probably get this question asked a lot, but I was curious, when, you know, in your mind, will will I be able to buy a fully self-driving car, kind of like what they call the level five, where I can just get picked up and taken to the grocery store and um, then brought back home? Um, Do you have any... Any guess, any sense, any, any range <laughs> of years? Well, when you, you know, you'll buy a self-driving car, that's likely to be quite a bit later than when you would be able to experience a ride in a self-driving okay. car. Um, and I'll explain what, what I mean by that is there's really two different models at play there. Um, selling a feature to a customer when they buy their next car, so when you go to the dealership, and you buy your next Ford or GM car or Volvo, whatever the case may be, you know, the question is, when will that salesman say, would you like the autonomy option package for, you know, $6,200? That's going to be several years in the future. I would be surprised if it was earlier than 2025. The reason for that is that that implies that you're not using extremely extensive sensors to enable that feature to operate. You're mm-hmm. only relying on cameras and radars. Now, with that said, the big caveat here is that, um, you know, often we're assuming when we, when we think about buying a car with autonomous operation, we assume that this would be a feature we could turn on and off anywhere in the world at any time of the day or night in any weather condition. And my strong sense is what we're going to evolve to in the field is a universe where even when we're offering that self-driving car feature to an end user customer, it'll only be available part of the time under certain conditions. Okay. Um, ideally under most conditions, I don't think you'd sell it if it was only under some conditions, but not under all conditions. And so I think, you know, the wild card here is a, is a, is a company like Tesla who is promising to actually sell these features that we're talking about in a much, much nearer time frame than 2025, probably in the coming few years. But I think the likely caveat there is that that feature wouldn't be available to you as the customer all the time. Um, it'll be a few years down the road before we have that 24-7 autonomous feature. Now, being able to experience a ride in a driverless car, the reason that that's going to be available to you as a customer sooner is because the economics of what we call mobility as a service are fundamentally different than the economics of, let's say, private vehicle ownership. Um, and it really, the difference is that you know, on the one hand, when you're buying a car and you're going to elect to purchase that feature, you are fairly price sensitive, fairly price constrained, and you being the average buyer, you may pay three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars. You're not going to pay twenty thousand dollars for a feature and add on to a car. On the other hand, if I wanted to pick you up in my robo taxi and I wanted to make a business out of doing that, well, if you think about the economics of a taxi service, a significant percentage of the cost of your taxi ride 
is, uh, well, the cost of that driver, the salary of that driver that's actually driving the car. And when I say significant, I mean anywhere from 30, from roughly one-third to two-thirds the cost of that trip is the cost of the driver. So if you can take the driver out of the car, you know, the economics of that taxi trip are radically upended. And let's say, you know, the first sort of that taxi driver, two shifts of a taxi driver per year, let's say uh, for the moment that that's $100,000. That means you could offset that $100,000 salary with equipment that you put on the car. So you could put tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to first order, again, of equipment on the car, have a favorable return on your investment, and be able to operate, you know, a business um, of moving people around using autonomous vehicles, and the economics would make sense. So that's really the reason why you're probably going to ride in a robot taxi and pay by the kilometer, you know, several years before you'll actually own, you know, that fully autonomous car. Gotcha. So even in Madison, we could possibly see fully autonomous taxis in three, four years, potentially. Yeah, and I think, I think, yeah, I think the other, I think the other point to make is that, you know, a a mental model that that we sometimes fall into is uh, assuming that when these cars arrive, they'll be available, you know, at scale, they'll be all over the place and available all the time. I think the the likely uh, reality is that your first experience in a self-driving shuttle or robo-taxi will be in a fairly, uh, let's say, structured environment. It'll be at the, uh, it'll be at a shopping mall. It'll be at a, um, an amusement park. It'll be at a closed campus somewhere, maybe on the, uh, you know, University of Wisconsin or somewhere like that, where you've got a predictable route that these cars are following or a predictable network of routes. Um, it's not necessarily the unconstrained, uh, open road environment. You know, these are technically easier use cases. Um, there are simplified economic cases. There are a way for developers of this technology and companies interested in the mobility services space to really test the waters. And, you know, for those reasons, all those reasons together, I think we'll tend to see this technology be deployed in these constrained environments first. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, and it seems like some companies are, you, know, you see, like they're doing autonomous, like shuttle service, which would be uh, kind of like at an airport or something. So people are or starting to do that, at least. Or in Vegas, I think I read <laughs> somebody's doing that. Um, that makes sense. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's a good example of an environment that we might call semi structured. Yeah. Um, of course, anything can happen when you're out in the, the natural world, but by bounding the operational environment of that car by saying, you know, you're going to stay in this, what we call a geofenced area. And, uh, oh, by the way, if it's a private ground, you might even be able to impose certain restrictions like dedicating a travel lane to these types of cars or putting flashing lights on them or, you know, similar things like that. You can make, A, the technical problem easier and, B, you know, the liability risk lower. You could essentially operate at lower speeds. There's a number of things you could do to make the problem more tractable and make the business case more attractive. Gotcha. Okay. And I know we're out of time. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Because I I was curious, you know, uh, about partnering and which uh, car companies have you partnered with, if if any. Well, we do. We have... um, 
a couple of partnerships with uh, with automotive companies. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to talk about the specifics of them because they all have a distinct nature. Okay. I mean, I can say generally that you know the automotive companies. If you had gone and talked to them three or four years ago about partnering with a startup, it would have been a uh, probably a difficult conversation because there's a big, you can say, a big impedance mismatch between you know just the scale of a typical OEM and the scale of a startup. It's really hard to find ways to meaningfully work together. In my experience, you know, these days the landscape has changed a little bit. There's a real, you know, strong interest in autonomous vehicle technology. There's a strong interest in mobility as a service in nearly every OEM worldwide these days. And there's a recognition that, you know, some of the good ideas and some of the good technology is being developed outside their four walls. Um, every company is different, of course. You can't completely generalize. But, um, you know, in our experience, talking with the various players in the auto industry, there's strong interest in what we're doing at Newtonomy. There's often a willingness to find a way to partner. And it really just comes down to, um, you know, identifying uh, a structure that the two sides are happy with and can get uh, meaningful work done. But we have actually had very productive relationships with some of the um, leading players in the auto industry. And I expect, you know, we'll continue to do that in the coming years. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, even on this podcast, I interview a lot of chief innovation officers and I think uh, sometimes the innovation teams have really opened up some of these large, opaque corporations to smaller entities and uh, let them filter through some of these large companies. Um, yeah, and I think what, um, what, what large organizations have realized is this is a very fast-moving space. And, um, you know, it, it's sometimes the case that you can develop technology internally at a very fast pace and get it out the door and in that manner keep pace with your competitors – in other scenarios, that's just not that easy to do. And so as a way to accelerate your progress, you look outside the four walls of your own company. You see if there's possibilities to partner and to license software, in some cases to, you know, through M&A activity to speed up your own internal development. And, um, you know, I think to the auto industry's real credit, uh, this is an industry that hasn't historically, at least again, very generally, uh, been very big on outside partnerships, especially with small companies. But um, I think that's changed pretty quickly uh, over the last couple of years. Gotcha. All right. So last question, you know, after you've uh, achieved the level five autonomy and uh, you're pretty comfortable, I guess there's probably always more environments you can get better at. I was going to ask, you know, what else is there to work on? But maybe it's just more and more use cases or tweaking to improve safety or I mean, you haven't probably thought a lot about what you're going to do after you reach it because you're not there, but um, I was just curious what else there is to work on once uh, you've reached it. Well, there's, you know, there's a ways to go in the technology development front. Um, the technology that we're building, and I can say generally across the space, no one has a finished product yet. Nobody has a solution that they would feel comfortable today taking the driver out of the car and letting that system operate in a completely driverless manner on really dense, difficult urban streets. Uh, we're making fast progress toward that goal. Some of our competitors are as well. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of work to be done just on core technical development. And so we really are focused on that. Uh, obviously, as we do that, we are continuously evaluating the business case, our go-to-market strategy, um, ensuring that when we have a product that's mature enough to put on the road, that we're able to go to market and start generating you know, meaningful revenue in the important early markets around the world. That makes sense. All right. Well, 
Carl, definitely uh, really appreciate your time and your thoughts here. And what you're doing is uh, very inspiring. So thanks for sharing with us and spending some time with us today. Well, my pleasure. It was nice to talk with you. Definitely. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Carl.